joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart to stay. Good to see you. If you can hear my voice and you're outside getting your last cup of coffee, come on and make your way in. We're about to get started. Uh, welcome to Trinity Bible Church, and we say a, a welcome also to all of our friends and family that are joining us via live stream. Remember, that is a great tool uh, to use, certainly not a replacement for gathering in person. We know the Scripture teaches us to to gather and uh, to worship and to use our talents and and our gifts uh, to bless each other. And so we want to do that. But uh, if you uh, are away on vacation or you're sick or for some reason cannot make it to join us in person, just go to our website, trinityallenwood.com, and just click right where it says watch live, and you'll be able to uh, to view and participate. Um, so today we are going to worship the Lord in many ways. I'm going to worship God through um, through a song, which we love to do. We'll do that in just a minute. Worship God through opening his word and uh, through fellowship and through prayer. And so get some fellowship earlier and we get to fellowship after service. Remember that we do have our coffee and breakfast. We offer that um, every Sunday morning at 945. So please 
take advantage of that and come early and uh, get to to catch up with uh, some people you haven't seen in a while and and um, uh, take advantage of that. And so it's always a good time. So um, what I'd like to do now is uh, I want to read from the scriptures as our call to worship, because as we read the Holy Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we know that it is all a testimony to the glory of God. This, uh, this very word of his is as if God is saying, here I am, right? Look at me and look in wonder and awe, for he deserves all the glory. And so when we uh, read the scripture as a call to worship, it is simply a reminder from his very own words about who God is and who we are in his sight. And it helps us uh, to, um, to allow our minds and our hearts to be settled and uh, to be more in focus and in tune with our God, for he deserves all of our attention. And so, you know, as I say often, um, we understand that we come to this place on a Sunday morning, the, the first day of a brand new week, uh, to do so, we do so in, in the, the, the history and line of the ancient church uh, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on that third day, on that Sunday morning. But we do so knowing that we have all had very different experiences this past week. And even this morning, some of us may have been on vacation and you're just very well rested and relaxed. And some of you really struggled this week or even struggled to be here this morning. But whatever your experience has been, know that the Lord is in this place because he dwells within each of us as believers in Jesus Christ, and he desires to meet with us. And so this is a very unique and special time. But yet, um, it is also unique and special because we get to do this together, right? Corporate worship, and we've been worshiping Lord willing, all week, maybe in your car, listening to music on the way to work or just at home, but we get to do this together now as the family of God, the body of Christ. And so what it says uh, in uh, Psalm 89 are words that remind us of the importance of gathering like this. It says this, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, and your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. This is an assembly of the holy ones, and it is a picture of what heaven will be like. For the angels are proclaiming the glories of God right now, we will be able to do that for all eternity, but we get to do it right now and to do it together. Church, would you stand? And I will pray us into a time of worship through song. Father, it certainly is a privilege to be here, as your word says, 
among the saints, the assembly of the holy ones. We have gathered here to honor you. We have gathered here, Father, primarily to give and not to receive, to offer ourselves, as your word says, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you as our spiritual act of worship. And so, Lord, we do that right now together as we, as we join our hearts, as we lift our voices together in unison in praising you. We do so, God, because of the love that you have shown us and that love through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So, Father, may you be blessed and you be glorified as we honor and worship you now. In that precious name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Church, let's worship the Lord together.
What a powerful name it is. Praise the Lord. Take a moment to say good morning to somebody standing next to you. Say good morning in the name of the Lord. if we can make our way back to our seats. We praise God for continued fellowship. <clears throat> praise the Lord. What a wonderful, powerful, amazing name, the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we have gathered here today. It's in his name that, um, that we celebrate life and life in Christ and um, I just pray that all that we say and do this morning would be God-glorifying and Christ-honoring. Amen? Because we have gathered in that wonderful, amazing name. So in just a few minutes, we're going to dive into God's Word, as we like to do every time we gather. We are still in First Peter in our series, um, Following Jesus in a Hostile World. And uh, you can turn your Bibles to get ready for that. It's in 1 Peter chapter 3, it's verses 13 to 22. And we'll get to that in, uh, in just a few minutes, but if you want to uh, get ready and follow along in your Bible, 1 Peter 3, 13 to 22. But just a, uh, a few notes of what we call church life to be kind of caught up in where we are in the life of Trinity. Just remember there's many ways to get involved here to use your spiritual gifts to bless others, um, and so always check out our website, trinityallenwood.com. Uh, make sure that you're signed up for our text updates. You can go to the website to get info on how to do that. You can sign up for our prayer email list if you'd like to, to know what's going on, the life of, uh, of the fellow believers here at Trinity and how to pray, and if you have prayer requests, you can send them there. All that information is, again, on our website. And as has been mentioned the last couple of weeks, normally we have our communion service and our fellowship lunch on the first Sunday of the month. So normally it would be today, but we have postponed that till next week, being that it is a 4th of July weekend. And so uh, we just thought it'd be better to just postpone that. And so next Sunday, which is July 10th, we will have our communion service, which ends our gathering 
And then right after that, uh, after our morning worship service and communion, we will have our fellowship lunch. And so we're still uh, in the midst of the summer season and barbecue. And so we just ask that you bring a side dish to share. We always provide the hamburgers and the hot dogs and the drinks and desserts, but it's a time that we love to, to, to gather. And so even if you don't bring anything, if you bring some friends and family, everybody is always welcome to stay, all right? And so that is next Sunday, so make sure you know that, that, make a note of that. It's always a good Sunday, too, to invite uh, friends, perhaps people that you've been sharing your faith with. They get to see true believers and communing with God and taking communion and, of course, seeing how we worship and how we fellowship with each other. So uh, a great time to invite those people that you have been talking to about the Lord Jesus. Just want to say thank you uh, also for uh, continuing to give and be such a generous church. Uh, just a reminder that we have our fellowship fund that's always available to give towards. So whether you give online through our website or uh, in the donation boxes, however you do give. Remember our fellowship fund. It is a fund that our deacons oversee to help people that have a financial need, primarily people within our church body, sometimes people outside that come and uh, present a need to us. But uh, just a reminder, it's another way to give to help people that are in need. So be mindful of that. It's uh, above and beyond our normal general giving to uh, Trinity uh, that is towards our fellowship fund. Um, I wanted to just to take a few moments uh, to just make an announcement about my father. Many of you have received an email, saw something on Facebook, but um, you'll hear more about this next Sunday as well. But um, uh, I have been on a three-month leave of absence in a way that I've only been here on Sundays. And all of you, the church leadership especially, have been so gracious uh, to allow me to do that, to just uh, uh, come and, and be with you on Sundays, but all of my other responsibilities have been taken care of these past three months, since April 1st, uh, by the church leadership and the ministry leaders. And I just want to say thank you. I doesn't even feel like the right words to use, but thank you, because uh, the goal was to be home with my dad for those three months, to help him become independent again, as he had spent almost two months in the hospital and or rehab and with just many um, physical issues and setbacks. And it's been an amazing three months um, and he's made so much progress and many of you have been praying for him and come to visit him. Um, but we just realized about a month ago that he just wasn't able to be home and independent on his own with Claudia and I working full time. And so uh, a number of weeks ago, uh, we um, the Lord provided this amazing opportunity uh, for my dad to go to the New Jersey uh, Fireman's Home. And you'll hear more about it probably next week, but it is a, a full-service nursing and assisted facility that uh, is up in Booton, New Jersey, and it is dedicated to retired firefighters from New Jersey. There is no place like it in the rest of the country. And so what another blessing uh, of my dad being a firefighter for 30 years in the city of Newark. And I just bring it up as just a personal thank you because you've all been praying and so supportive and asking about him. And uh, although it was not what we desired because we wanted him to be home and independent, uh, if he can't be home with us, this is the next best thing, a place that is dedicated to honoring 
the firefighters, his years of service, and caring for him now in this new season of life. And so, again, wanted to say thank you uh, from myself and from Claudia and from my dad, Ed. And so, um, as many of you heard, uh, we're having just an open house today uh, at our home here in Brick uh, from 4 to 8. So uh, if any of you are available, just to stop by even for just a few minutes during that time, uh, just to say hello to my dad, to wish him well, maybe to pray for him. And uh, I know many of you have been asking, how is he? How is Ed? And it's been so long since he's been here. He especially misses our fellowship lunches and the great hot dogs that we have. And so usually on those Sundays, I come home and bring him a, a hot dog that we had. And so but more importantly, he misses all of you. And so I just say thank you. And uh, again, if you have a, uh, just a few minutes to stop by later today between four and eight, just to um, wish him well, say a few words of encouragement, uh, because he moves up to the home uh, this Thursday. It all happened very quickly. Um, it was a long process, but we just found out this Thursday that he was accepted. And so he, uh, we move him up there next Thursday. And so you have the time. But again, on behalf of me and Claudia and my dad, we say a heartfelt thank you to to everyone. And those um, those words of appreciation will continue <laughs> for many weeks to come. Um, and then uh, finally, before we we uh, address the issues of the day in God's word, we have a few words of testimony from some of the people that went out with our our missions team last week. If you remember, there was an outreach to Lakewood. We call it the Gospel and Pizza. And uh, it was an amazing time, I, I heard. And so uh, Andrew and Elizabeth, who head up our missions team, and said a few people wanted to, to share some words of a brief testimony about their experience and what happened uh, last Sunday afternoon in Lakewood. So Andrew, if you can come and grab the, the mic. There you go. I promise I won't sing. Mm -hmm. Tina? I, the homeless is, has my heart, and last Sunday was my birthday, and it was the best gift I could. And went out there, and I first had a conversation with a guy in a wheelchair, and uh, he knows the Lord. I asked, that's my first question. And um, he has been homeless since he was run over by a truck there in Lakewood, right on Clifton, where we, and the next day was going to be his court appearance. Uh, for money, and uh, he broke both hips, pelvis, ankle, could barely walk, and so I, I prayed with him for favor, for God's favor the next day in court that he can get a home, and then this other lady was just crying and crying. She said she came down for her son's graduation, but she lived up in where's Edison, an hour away, and just crying that her phone was stolen. She had no way to get home. She'd been sleeping on this comforter under a tree, and there's not many women out there, and it's not the safest place for them. So I um, brought her some food and a drink, and she said, I just have no way to get home. So I went back, and my son and his fiance were there, and my son stepped up to the plate and said, we'll take her. And uh, so they drove her home, and the whole way home, she just kept saying, God bless you all. God bless you. And tell your mother, bless her, bless her. And she gave me a compliment, too. Her lipstick's so smooth, it matches her glasses. <laughs> I like the pink. 
people notice. But anyway, they got her home safely and she couldn't thank us enough because she had been stuck there for five days and um, she had no way to get there. So I was happy with my son uh, that he stepped up to the plate and uh, it was a real blessing to be out there and, and help others and feed them and give them a drink and give them Jesus. It's awesome. God is good. Miss Bessie. Um, I, I just thought it was great to show the love of Christ. I think that was kind of the biggest thing that they saw a group of people that come from different places and they saw that we loved each other and we were just loving on them. And I, I think that that probably was the thing that hit me the most. Um, I, I think Rod, I was really happy Rodney yelled out when we first got there, or when I first got there, um, you know, the pizza will feed your stomachs or something like that, but Jesus will fill your souls. And he did it so loud. And it was like, oh, that was great. Because it really kind of set the tone of I, what people knew that we were here to, for. But, you know, everybody wants something, right? People are nice to you because they want something. I mean, that's sadly, a lot of times that's what you feel. And in Christ, you know, we're just loving on people and don't want anything from them, um, but to but to give them something. And I thought that was the day was all about that. And I just thank Elizabeth and Andrew. I'm blessed that you guys are in this ministry and, um, and uh, you have hearts, tender, beautiful hearts. And I don't know what we'd do without you being able to speak Spanish. <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> God is good. God is good. Rodney. Amen. Yeah, last Sunday was my birthday also. I had a good time. I was blessed to go to the outreach last week. Uh, my wife also went. She's not here this morning. She had to work. But I just want to really give a shout out to this guy, Andrew, and his his wife, Elizabeth. Man, they are such a blessing. Andrew is such so full of the joy of the Lord. You know, and every time we go out, man, people just see it. He's he's just such a blessing. But anyway, yeah, last week was was really great again. Uh, just going out there and sharing our faith, giving them food for their body. But Jesus can only nourish their soul and their spirit. So that's what we went out to do. I want to ask you guys to uh, keep a lady named April in prayer. We talked to her last week. She was very open. She even said that she had accepted the Lord at one point, but I think where she was at and how she was living, you know, she just wasn't where she should be. So keep her in your prayers. But, you know, next time we have an outreach like this, I just encourage you guys to go out and share your faith. You know, uh, this is, you know, like Andrew was saying before the service we were talking, he said, that's how we grow spiritually. When you go out and share Jesus with others, we get blessed spiritually. It was just a great time. And uh, thanks again. Yes, and Jesus said, you know, Matthew 25, 40, you did for the least of them, you did unto him. So we just want to get out there and share. Because when we do that, we feed in Jesus as well, and he's walking with you. You know, he's walking side by side with you, which each and every one of us, we want to say thank you for everything, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody come to the Father unless they come through him. And we was able, by God's grace, Antonio gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ last Sunday. All praise go to the Lord. Yeah. Awesome.
I love when you follow directions. It's a, that's a blessing from the Lord right there. But thank you. And of course, we know that, that those that shared and those that, that didn't could, could tell so many more stories. So I, I do uh, echo those words that uh, the next time that we have those, the missions team tries to put together at least one per month and uh, all different kinds of ways to, to get out beyond these four walls and serve. Take advantage of that. Because that really is what it's all about, right? Sharing the love of Christ. And, you know, we don't always get to see the fruit of uh, our labor and our, uh, our acts of service. But sometimes God allows that. And so when we hear of somebody believing in the Lord Jesus for salvation and in him alone, uh, we know the angels rejoice and we rejoice right along with them. Amen. Amen. And, uh, you know, and, and as I said before, in just a minute, as we open to 1 Peter 3, remember Peter is talking about um, our witness to the world. And that's what you just heard testimony of, our testimony and our witness of standing up for Christ, of standing up for being believers and followers of Jesus Christ. So you can keep those words of testimony in an outreach like that as a context for what we will talk about in just a moment. But first, before we get into God's word, <clears throat> a few things. On July 2nd of 1776, John Adams, one of the founding fathers of this country and framers of the Declaration of Independence, um, he said famously that that day, signifying the ratification of the Declaration of Independence of those colonies from England should be a day that would be celebrated forever, for as long as this country stands, with revelry and celebrations. And it is what happens. And tomorrow is the 4th of July. This is July 4th weekend. And for those of us that live at the shore, we know it's July 4th, don't we? Mm. But he said we are to celebrate forever our independence. But more specifically, this holiday, July 4th, it celebrates the ratification of the Declaration of Independence, which is a foundational document of our country, these United States of America, which specifically explains the reasons that the colonies must be separate from England. And it outlines 27 of those reasons. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you read the Declaration of Independence? Or have you ever read it? It's really a, it's a short document. It's not as long as perhaps you may think. But what I'd like to do now is read to you the beginning and then the very end of this document. Because right in the middle, the, the, um, the signers and the writers of this Declaration of Independence, they outline the 27 reasons that they are declaring independence for our country from England. But at the beginning and the end of this document, there's some things that I think we want to make sure that we notice. Do we have that to be put up on the screen? Because what I'd like to do is read this. I'm going to read the beginning and then the end. Perhaps it's a, 
It's a document that you've never read before. There's some familiar words, but I think you'll see in a moment why I'm reading this. Here's what it says. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness." Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are, are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But... When a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariable the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies. And such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And then they go on to list 27 reasons that they believe that they should be separated from a tyrannical government led by King George III at that time. But then the ending of the document says these words, the very last sentence, and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives our fortunes, and our sacred honor. When's the last time you read those words? Notice at the very beginning, we hold these truths to be self-evident, 
that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Do you know what that word unalienable means? Some versions say inalienable. It's the same word. It means that they are rights that no man or woman can give to you. They are rights that are given to us by God, by the fact that we exist, that we live as men and women in this world. No matter what country or form of government we live under, the framers of this country and the writers and signers of this Declaration of Independence made clear at the very beginning that these rights that they then list, among them being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, are rights that no law can give us and no government can give or take away. They are inalienable or unalienable. They are from our Creator. This is a founding document of the country in which we live. But then it ends with these words, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, because the founding fathers knew that in order for this new government, this new system they were instituting to work, they needed the hand of God. They needed what they called the protection of divine providence. See, this document, the Declaration of Independence, is also the lens through which, even today in the year 2022, we read and understand the Constitution of the United States of America, which would have been drafted and ratified about 12 years later after the Declaration of Independence. So then, of course, the Constitution became the supreme law of the land as it is today. The Constitution of the United States of America defines the framework of our constitutional federal republic and the functions and the powers and limitations of those powers of that system of government. It's a constitutional federal republic in which we live. Did you know that? We often say we live in a democracy, but yes, technically, we are a constitutional federal republic. What does that mean? Constitutional refers to the fact that the government in the United States is based on a constitution which is the supreme law of the land. The constitution not only provides the framework for how we, we, um, how we operate and for the federal and state governments under which it is structured, but it also places significant limitations on their powers. But federal means that there is both a national and state-level governments in all 50 states, and that is unique. But a republic means it is a form of government in which the people, that's you and me, hold power. But we elect representatives to exercise that power. See, that is how our country is structured. I bring this all up because it has great relevance to what we're going to study in the Word of Scripture today. But also, as you all know by now, a little over a week ago, on June 24th, that Friday, the Supreme Court, one of the branches of government, right, the, the court system, 
the Supreme Court, the Supreme Judge of this land, they overturned Roe versus Wade, which had been in existence for 50 years. Did you know that? For 50 years, Roe v. Wade was the law of the land. That Friday marked a major shift in our country, the ramifications of which I believe we have only begun to experience and understand. But in essence, what that ruling simply meant was that the decision for having an abortion goes back to the states. It did not outlaw abortion, as some people have said. It simply returns the decision to the people, which is where the framers of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution believed it should be. And so as Christians, we still pray. And as Christians, we get to vote now. You see, you don't vote for a Supreme Court justice. You know that, right? They're appointed. But yet we get to vote for and have influence on our elected representatives because we are a republic. And so that is where the decision now stands. We live in the state of New Jersey. But there are many states within the 50 states that have different rules and laws based upon what those people have voted over the years on abortion. So, the power now rests back with the people. But as I said, the ramifications of that decision on June 24th, we have only begun to experience and to understand. But the power has gone back to the states. So yes, we celebrate a monumental victory for life, do we not? But our focus as Christians, as believers, is for just that, life. One of my great responsibilities as a pastor is not to bring you the news of the day. You know, it's interesting, just as a side note, but the clergy, the, the pastors during their early days, the first century and a half, let's say, of this country, even leading up to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution ratification, they were the ones who would disseminate the news of the day. Because you think about it, back then there were no newspapers or telephones or internet. There was nothing. People would go to church to want to hear the news of the day. Well, now today you can open your phone and get the news at any time, can't you? We have a proliferation of information, an overload of information. But what my calling to do is to open the word of God and share with you the truth that lies within. And not to tell you how the Bible is relevant or to try to convince you that it is relevant, but to show you that it already is relevant for any area of life under any type of government during any age of human history, and always to point it back to Jesus Christ. Do you agree with me? And so I bring this all up because we are celebrating July 4th. We are celebrating what? Independence? Independence from what? What we just read. From tyranny. Independence as a nation, as a free people. We celebrate freedom. But as Christians, we understand nations come and go. Laws come and go, but God is forever. 
And we are citizens, yes, here and now, of these great United States of America with this framework in place. But ultimately, we are citizens of heaven, of a spiritual kingdom. And we are citizens of that kingdom and that realm first and foremost. That is our identity. So therefore, all that we say and do and think, our worldview should be informed always by and through the lens of Scripture including how we then interpret and understand and then voice our understanding to others of things like a Supreme Court ruling. See, we believe in the one true God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because our God is the author and creator of life, the God who then gets to decide who we are. Our God defines life because he is the author and creator and sustainer of it. So although that ruling from June 24th sends that decision back to the states, even trying to decide when is a person a person, we understand the the human legalities of it. But as Christians, we understand that the God of the Bible, our God, he defines life, does he not? Jeremiah 1.5 tells us that God knew us before he formed us in the womb. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. That's from Jeremiah 1.5. Psalm 139 says this, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That's the Holy Scripture talking about the life of the yet unborn. Abortion is a matter of the life or death of a human being made in God's image. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make them in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But we must also remember as God values all life, make sure we don't miss this, God is a God of love, and God is a God of forgiveness. All sin, even the sin of taking a life, is forgiven by God in Christ. Psalm 103, 8 through 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Hear these words, church. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions 
from us. Can I get an amen for that? We praise God. God forgives sins based on the sacrifice of Christ. And we are called to love and forgive one another with the same love with which we have been forgiven. So we are to celebrate life, be humbled by God's forgiveness, and love others as we have been loved. And may we continue to celebrate and honor life, all life, because there is no life apart from the hand of God. In our passage for today, as we continue our study through First and Second Peter, the Apostle Peter teaches us how to suffer for Christ and how to respond to injustice. If you remember, Peter is writing, and this is so important we keep this in context, church. Peter is writing this short letter to Christians, a bunch of Christians who are being persecuted. They're being mocked and persecuted for their faith. At this time, they are not yet experiencing the, the torture and, and death that we know will come. The kind of persecution they, they are they're mostly um, experiencing is the kind that we tend to experience. The ridicule, the mocking for our faith, being made fun of, being persecuted, being turned away, being shunned from family and friends, losing relationships because of it. That's what was happening. They were trying, these Christians, to live out their new faith in a world that was becoming more and more hostile to them and their beliefs. So Peter is writing to encourage them to remember who they are and to encourage them that their suffering is not in vain. And that's the heart of the message that we see in this passage. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22, the end of this chapter, we see Peter starts to really define for us what it looks like, how to suffer for Christ, and how to do it effectively and in a godly way, and how to respond in the midst of injustice. Injustice to people we love, injustice to the people that we are citizens with in this country, injustice to us personally because of our faith. I've said many times throughout this series that one of the reasons I believe that, that the Lord put this on my heart to share, to go through this book, is because we are living in times in our country, in our context, unlike any other, where we have seen and will continue to see, we take scripture literally, more and more persecution of the church, and that's us. Now, make no mistake, like I say, our context, because for more than 2,000 years, Christians, true believers around the world have been persecuted in ways that we can never imagine, and it still continues today. But we don't live in those other countries. We live here and now. And so we can relate in many ways to the people, to the Christians that Peter was writing to. We can understand what that persecution may look like and what it may continue to look like in the near future. Peter has been telling those Christians to submit. How do they respond to suffering? Submission. Boy, that doesn't sound right, does it? 
That's what he says. In the face of injustice and persecution, submit to authority. Submit to the authority of God. Submit to the authority of government. Submit to those in authority. Submit to others in your relationships. All for the sake, listen, this is the whole key, all for the sake of our witness of Christ to an unbelieving and hostile world. You just heard a few testimonies of just simply going to share the love of Christ. Share a little food to meet a need to share the love of Jesus with others. Not everybody is hostile, but some people are. Unfortunately, more increasingly so. But now in his letter, Peter spells out how we are to do this, and he gives us examples. Don't you love when the writers of scriptures give us examples? Because oftentimes we read it and we're just like, I just don't know, we can't connect the dots. How do I make this work in my life? Peter gives us some examples. Here's our passage for today on how to suffer for Christ and respond to injustice. You can read it along in your Bible. I'm going to read it. It's up on the screen for you. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That is our passage for today. So let us just briefly in our time left together this morning, unpack some of the truths here that we certainly do not want to miss. In the context of our life in Christ and our walk with Jesus now, in this time and place in history, in light of the fact that we are celebrating the 4th of July, freedoms, the declaration of independence, that we are a free country, organized under a certain type of government that gives us all kinds of freedoms. You know, I believe that this country, for all of our faults and all of our failures, because there are many, why? Because it is run by fallible men and women. It is perfect by no means. But yet I believe has given the most freedoms to the most people of any other nation throughout history. And we have the ability to vote, 
to protest, to do things to hold on to those freedoms. Because you know, church, once you give up a freedom, you won't get it back. That's the way it works. But in light of all that, let us spend just a few minutes unpacking these verses together. There's a lot to go through. So look, in verses 13 and 14, what is he basically saying? Peter is saying, we want to be persecuted for doing good, not for evil. It seems obvious, but here's the, uh, the application. Don't be your own worst enemy. <laughs> you don't want to suffer for the bad that you do. Because Peter is saying, there's going to be enough suffering and persecution in your life because you're a Christian, because you're doing good. That's okay. Expect that kind of suffering. Don't also suffer because of your poor decisions. Don't be your own worst enemy. We are blessed for doing good. Blessed. When that word blessed, we see that in the original Greek in the language. You know what it means? It doesn't just mean being happy. It means highly privileged. He said, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You will be highly privileged to suffer for Christ. Elsewhere, we see in a few other passages, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, it says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. How about that? Does that Paul in that letter make it clear? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That's a statement and a declaration right there. It also says elsewhere in Matthew 5, verse 12. It says it in a different way. Matthew 5, verse 12. Matthew 5, verse 12 says this. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's saying we're going to be like the prophets. As we proclaim Jesus, as the prophets proclaimed God and righteousness and goodness in him, they were persecuted. We should expect no different. Last week, Pastor Jared was here and shared a good word for us from uh, Matthew chapter 10. And those words are appropriate again to be read for this morning, Matthew chapter 10, verses uh, 28 through 31. It says this, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Right? Say that to your spouse next time you wake up in the morning. You are more value than many sparrows. How beautiful that is. They were sold for like two cents a piece, so maybe we shouldn't really say that, you know. But what is, what is the Word of God saying? Saying persecution is to be accepted, church. 
if we are living out our life for Christ. Do we go looking for it? No. But Peter is saying, and Paul says it, and Jesus says it, it will happen. As I've often said in this series, Jesus told us, he said, the world has hated me, they're going to hate you. And that's the way of things. We have, listen, we have enjoyed a very privileged position as Christians in this country for many years. Our country is almost 250 years old, right? We have experienced such great freedoms. But there has never been a promise from God or anybody else that we would always have and enjoy these freedoms. There has never been a nation on the face of this earth that God has made a covenant with other than the nation of Israel, other than the people of Israel, God's chosen people, not with America, not any other country, but yet we know God also says to Abraham, he says these powerful words, those who bless you, meaning Abraham, the Jewish people, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Because God made a covenant with them. But yet we know, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. See, but that starts not with the laws, necessarily, with government or leadership. It starts with us, citizens, us as Christians. So what's the key takeaway from verses 13 and 14? Are we more afraid of people than of God? Doesn't it sound silly that we be more afraid of what people think or what people can do to us than what God can do to us? What's the worst thing a person can do to us? Take our life. Then we'd be in the presence of Jesus. Do we want it? No. <laughs> but we think about it and put it in perspective. We are to fear God rather than men. A word from last week as well. Verse 15. Right, as we continue on quickly, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord the Lord is holy. A few years ago, we had this as our theme verse for the year, 1 Peter 3:15, right? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. See, he says that because again, in context, Peter is telling them, look, the way you live your life in front of non-believers is really important. It starts with what's in here and in here, what you believe to be true. But how you live it out in front of others is vitally important because other people will see Christ in you. They want to see how you react. You've experienced this at work or in your family. The unbelieving world is watching. You ever experienced that? When you know people perhaps you've shared your faith with that, that, that are Christ deniers still and they they look at you and they might have one eye always turned to you to see how you're doing, to see how you will react, to see how you treat your boss at work if you steal that package of pens, to see how you live out your life. People are watching. Once we proclaim Christ and his identity in us, people watch. People will see us suffer and we are witness for the hope of Christ that is in us. How do we handle suffering, church? Whether it's because of our faith or just suffering in general, because of ill health or a bad relationship or because of economic calamity. How do we handle our anger or even our frustrations in front of others? Because it does make a difference. He goes on to say, having a good conscience, that's what it's all about. He goes, when you're slandered, he doesn't say if, when you're slandered, 
Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. See, if you're always doing what God has called you to do, and you're following Christ, people can revile you, but the shame will be not on you, but on them. See how that works? The shame will be on them. You might feel it, but the shame is truly on them. That's why he says earlier, like, don't be your own worst enemy. Suffer for doing good. That is honorable and right. He says, verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. God will allow it. It will be part of God's will for us to suffer. When we are suffering, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned us or left us. Yes, it may be because of our own doing and our own consequences, but if we are suffering for doing good, Peter says, God's will. God allows it. He wills it. Even the suffering of the innocent, it is, should be part of the normal Christian life. We should expect it because God will use it for his glory. In verse 18, he gives us an example. These last verses, he gives us examples. First, he gives us the example of Christ, then of Noah, and then Christ again. See, he starts with Christ, he ends with Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Our example, Peter says, ultimately, is always Jesus Christ, the just for the unjust. Christ suffered, but unjustly. Why? Because we were the ones who were supposed to be on the cross. It was our sin that put him there, that nailed him to the cross. He was the only one who didn't deserve it, yet he was the only one who went to the cross. And also, he did not revile in return. What are those famous words that, we, that Jesus said that we wonder, could we ever do that? From the cross, suffering as he did, what does he say to the people down below that are torturing him and putting him to death in such a way? Does he say, I'm coming back to get you? <laughs> no. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Ever said that to yourself or to the Lord while you're suffering any kind of persecution? In your heart of hearts, Father, forgive them. They just don't know. They might be calling me names. They might be persecuting me for my faith. They just don't yet know, God, forgive them. Do we pray for our enemies like Jesus says? Somebody slaps us on one cheek, reviles us. Are we willing to give them the other? 19 through 21, I won't read it all, but here's what he's saying. This is sort of that tough passage. This would be a whole sermon in and of itself. I just want to highlight a couple of things, and this would be one of those great times where I'd say, make a note to go back and do your own study on this, because for some reason, Peter kind of makes like a left turn here. It's all in context, right? But he kind of makes a left turn here and throws in these really difficult teachings, and you're kind of like, what on earth is he saying? Like, you're following him so far. Yes, suffering and witness for Christ. And then he says, when he talks about Christ and being put to death, made alive in the Spirit, he says, in which... He, meaning Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah 
while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Then verse 21, he says something quite peculiar. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you as removal of dirt from the body, but as, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, I said I wouldn't read it all, and I just read it, so don't believe anything I say. So. <laughs> but why did I do that? There's two things in here. Again, we can't go into detail. Studied on your own. But two things just to make, to make um, sense of what he's saying. Basically what Peter is doing, again, he's giving us examples of how to live out our, our faith in Christ being persecuted. He said Jesus did it. It was the, the just for the unjust. He said, how about Noah in his day? Because he says, Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly didn't obey. Then he talks about it happening in the days of Noah when God's patience ran out. Remember? Because he had told us his word in Genesis 6. He said, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. How about that? The wickedness of the human race was so great it says in God's word, listen, every inclination of every thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. You think God's making a point? The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But, Genesis 6, 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. See, so what Peter is doing is referring back to Noah. He'd give it as Christ as an example. Now he's referring to Noah. But first he says, well, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. There's a bunch of different views on what this really means. I believe that in the original language and just reading it literally, understanding the context, what he's saying here is the spirits are those fallen angels. That Jesus went between the time of his death on the cross, the crucifixion and the resurrection, during that time, Jesus went and proclaimed, and that's an important word, proclaimed something to the spirits in prison, those fallen angels, some of which, for whatever reason, are bound. And Jesus went and proclaimed to them. He did not preach to them the gospel because there is no second chance. Once you die, you cannot say, okay, God, you were right. There was no second chance for these fallen angels. Jesus went and proclaimed, that word proclaimed, meaning that he went and told them basically this. Believe it's saying that he went and told the fallen angels that your plan to thwart God's plan, to bring a Messiah through the people, of this earth has failed miserably. Why? Because during the days of Noah, there were such creatures called the Nephilim. Did you ever hear about them? Again, it's like a whole series in and of itself. And they were creatures, real creatures, who were the offspring of fallen angels who had taken on the form of men, of real men, of flesh and bones of men, right? And they had relations with real human women and the offspring were what we called the Nephilim. They were giants, the, the men of old, the men of renown, they were called. And they did evil. Did you ever see the movie Noah with Russell Crowe? Some of you did, right? I'm not saying it's biblically accurate, but I, in that movie, it was kind of cool because they were huge rock monsters. Okay. You know. 
Think of it that way. Who are the Nephilim? Huge rock monsters. Okay. But the idea is this. They were special creatures that were part of Satan's ultimate plan to use his fallen angels, demons, to procreate with human, human women, to create their offspring. Why? Solely to try to corrupt the DNA, I believe, of humanity so that God could not eventually bring forth the Redeemer that he had promised. See, right in the garden, God promised there'd be a Redeemer through the seed of woman, see? Fully God, but fully man. So this is one of Satan's attempts to thwart that plan, I believe, through the Nephilim. So why is Peter bringing this all up all of a sudden, sort of a left turn here? He's saying why? Because Noah is an example simply for this reason. Because Noah suffered ridicule and persecution for saying there's going to be a flood, you know, building an ark. And they're like, flood, rain, what's that? He suffered ridicule and persecution, but yet he was blessed. He found favor in the eyes of God. That's why Peter's using him as an example. Much more I could say. The second thing, as we bring it to a close, that he says in this difficult passage, it seems like he's saying, excuse me, Peter is saying, you know what? Baptism saves you. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So here's an important rule. When you study the scripture, when you interpret what the Bible says, let us make sure that we let the clear parts of Scripture interpret the unclear parts, okay? It's a good rule of thumb. Because we know all throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, there is only one condition for salvation, and that is believing. You don't have to do enough works, say the right words, or pray the right prayer. It says believe. To receive the salvation that God has made, offered free to us, through Jesus Christ, him doing all the work on the cross, we simply must believe. Believe in who Jesus is, who he says he is, and that he did what he said he was coming to do. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him alone for our eternal salvation, the Bible says that we are saved. So why would Peter says, why would he say all oh, baptism saves you? Look what he says in verse 21 real quick. Baptism which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? He's talking about the flood of Noah. So he's making an analogy of the waters of baptism to the waters of the flood. He's saying, so baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you? Pause right there. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. He's like, so not about salvation, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Why? Because what happens in baptism what we believe here at Trinity, we believe in believer's baptism, that when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus, any time after that moment, you are to be baptized. It's one of the two commandments that Jesus gives to the church. Communion and baptism, right? Be baptized. Baptism is an outward expression, a public display of a change that has already happened in the heart. Your position is already secure in Christ, when you are baptized, it's symbolic, right? It's a display. It's, it's a pledge saying, I stand with Christ now, and, and I want to tell everybody about it. Because it's already happened 
once for all in your life. So Peter is saying kind of just like the flood of Noah separated Noah and his family who found favor in God's eyes from all that evil when God said people's hearts were evil all the time. Every thought was evil. The floods did away with that. See, Peter is saying, just like Noah and his family were separated from the old way, now they were to live the new way, we are like that. Baptism is a show of that. Baptism is an outward expression of saying, you know what, I was this way, I am new in Christ, now I proclaim to want to be this way, and every day of my life I want to live that way. Not to secure my salvation, that's already done. But Peter is making a, an example, a, um, a reference, right? An analogy of the water of baptism to the flood waters. Why? Because when we are baptized, we are making that public commitment and declaration of a change of our position before God that has already occurred. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, just like with the floodwaters of Noah's day. This is Peter's meaning. And finally, as we close, talking about Jesus once again. See, he gives us Jesus as the ultimate example. <laughs> Who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. Again, their example is Christ. Why? Because Christ was vindicated after he suffered unjustly. See that? So as Christians, we know, just like Noah will be blessed if we're ridiculed, right, for following God, and just like Christ, we will be vindicated, ultimately, maybe not even in this lifetime, we will be vindicated for our suffering if we suffer for the good of God and the gospel, which is what Peter is saying. Some final thoughts. The unbelieving world is watching us, church. If we are to follow Jesus in a hostile world, we must remember that. Our testimony, our example is important. See, Christ's suffering brought us from darkness to light, from death to life. So, our suffering in Christ, God will use to lead others to also see and believe that they also may be led from darkness to light, from death to life. You see that? Christ's suffering did that for us. So our suffering in Christ will be a testimony, a witness to others if we suffer for doing good that God will then use to bring others to him. God will use our suffering to bring others to himself. We do not suffer in vain when we suffer for Christ because suffering and persecution is a part of our proclaiming the gospel with our lives. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Father God, thank you so much that you allowed us the freedom to be here in this place today, the freedom to raise hands, the freedom to sing real loud, the freedom to stand still, the freedom to proclaim Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. Thank you, Father God. May we never forget those freedoms. May we celebrate life in you every single day. And God, may we ultimately remember our citizenship in heaven, 
Lord, that we would represent you, our king of that great kingdom. We look forward to that coming reality of that coming kingdom. We thank you, Lord God. But until then, we proclaim you, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. May we proclaim it with our lips. May we proclaim it the way that we live, even and especially in the midst of our suffering. In the end of the day, we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, go and always be ready to give an account of the hope that is within you.